there's this idea of failing fast, which I feel like is the right idea, but people seem to focus too much on the failing aspect of it. I'd say it's more like testing fast, where it doesn't take like two, three years to learn if these things are going to work or not. Um, organizing a good test, if you remember back to science class in like fifth or sixth grade, where you have your hypothesis that you're testing and going through the scientific method. A lot of these business concepts, you can test them out in a relatively um, inexpensive way. And that allows you to um, have confidence before you go and do something really ambitious like quit your day job. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Small Business Startup Essentials podcast, where we dive into the topics of starting your own online personal brand business. Maybe money's tight and you'd like to have an additional income stream, but maybe you're making that later in life pivot and you'd like to monetize your expertise. I offer coaching through my Solopreneur in 90 Days program. You can sign up for a time slot at tomclaremont.com slash coaching. But now let's get right into this episode. Well, today I have with me author, co-founder, and chief technology officer of Yembo, Zach Ratner. Now, Zach recently wrote a book called Grow Up Fast. And let me tell you, this was a good read. I recommend this book to anyone that's thinking of launching a startup, or maybe already launched one and need some guidance on how to navigate through the process. Now, Zach currently lives in San Diego, California with his wife and family, and I'm sure he's going to have some good insight for us today on making that transition out of the corporate environment to having a successful business. Zach, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Happy to be here. So, I read your book, Grow Up Fast, um, and um, it, it was a, a much easier read than uh, than I expected. It, you know, you're in the technical realm, and uh, it's a book about, uh, you know, using AI for uh, for your startup. And I, I, I thought it was going to get a, a little deep, and but it was it was still very informative, uh, a good read. And it's just a, a great perspective on on the issues that you had going through um, your journey in starting a, a business. Now, I understand you you only started with with nine hundred dollars. I did, yeah, and it was um, we hadn't incorporated yet. It was my own checking account personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The base of the company basically. Um, decided we decided to go and start the company based on that initial investment mm -hmm. and i can tell you what happened so um so we build computer vision technology in home service industries and the flagship product we started with was selling to moving companies my co-founder and i wanted to take the advancements that were happening in computer vision and academic labs and corporate research arms and bring it to an industry that was never really going to see it coming so we landed on on moving and storage and um the industry is very networked. There are a lot of trade shows and events where different folks in the industry come together. Um, that's just because moving is very networked. If you're moving from maybe New York to London, you generally, if you're a moving company, don't have personnel everywhere in the world. So you partner and you work with these other companies in other areas that you're not in. And that um, 
naturally lends itself to uh, trade shows being a place where a lot of business gets done. So we had an idea. Uh, my co-founder and I made a uh, a demo that I would say got the point across. It was like a pre-recorded video. We um, trained our own AI model. It was very limited. It could only do maybe uh, three or four different items. But it got the point across enough to say, to, you could talk to a moving company and say, we're thinking about revolutionizing the way that these pre-move surveys are done, which are traditionally very labor-intensive. Um, there's wear and tear in the vehicle. There's the hourly rate for the person going and doing it. The person on the other end generally has work that they have to j juggle, and these in-home visits, they're sometimes inconvenient. And we wanted to use computer vision technology where the person can just record videos on their own time, and the AI could identify what's there, and everyone has like a smoother experience overall. But... The booths were $900. So that's uh, that's what we were up against is we had to decide, is it worth the investment out of my own bank account when I don't really have a product to sell yet, but I can go talk to a couple hundred people that would be my customer if I had that product. So um, naturally, we decided initially not to spend the 900 bucks. So I did the math and said, if I just go to this hotel and I sit at the bar and if a beer is like $9 a pop, I can get a hundred conversations for the price of one booth. So we did that, um, categorized our feedback. And what we found was everything fell into one of two camps. So we show the video, we talk about what we're doing, talk about our background. And people either said, if you can actually do this, you'll revolutionize the industry. Or they said, there's no way that's ever going to work. You're full of baloney. And um, then we realized that we were onto something. And that actually led us to focus on building, figuring out who would be the right first customers to take this thing to market because it's so different from what the industry had seen before. And we built a, built the technology, got some pilots going. And the next year we came back and that time we uh, we had properly uh, funded it. So we, we spent the $900 and got a booth. Good. But how did your corporate experience and your corporate environment set the stage for you know, you getting into this position of having uh, your idea for a startup. Sure. So my corporate experience was as an engineer. I'm a software engineer by training. Studied software engineering at Virginia Tech, then worked at a tech company called Qualcomm for about five years, and I learned really good engineering principles there. So Qualcomm makes chips that goes in like billions of phones across the world. So when you're working as a software engineer, if there's a bug in your code, like it will be found. And um, there's a very high standard of operational excellence. And I think that that led me to this idea of this concept of a T-shaped individual that you may have heard of before. But the idea is in a lot of business writing, there's this idea that like a good entrepreneur is T-shaped, meaning they have an area that they're really deep in. That's like the vertical bar of the T. But then they also have horizontal... Um, abilities and backgrounds outside of their core area of expertise. So I would say my corporate world got me really deep in the T. And then in startup life, um, you have to get used to not having departments who can handle all these other aspects. So setting up a booth, you need an operations team, you need a designer, you need all these different pieces. And that's where I feel like I I had that stake in the ground um, as a as a software engineer. But I had this kind of entrepreneurial urge. I wanted to, I wanted to do more and not just be someone who writes code all day. Um, mm. Kind of branching out and um, 
getting opportunities to do these other things, um, I felt like was really helpful. And at a startup, I mean, I'm, I'm a biased person. I'm going to be very pro startup throughout this whole talk. Mm -hmm. You can try a lot of things and you don't have to spend a lot of money. Like I talked about this trade show and um, you don't have to like bet your entire career just to try something out. So in a bigger company, if you want to like transition to another group or maybe you want to go from engineering to product or operations, like that usually involves um, interviewing again. And it's like a very uh, difficult to reverse decision. Whereas in a startup world, I mean, if that trade show didn't work out, if everyone just said, yeah, I'm never going to touch this, like we lost a weekend. That was about it. So by learning to ask good questions, make small bets, and then calibrate your response based on the feedback that you're seeing, you can kind of incrementally work your way to, to more and more things. But the, um, I feel like there's a really ripe opportunity to do that when you're running your own company, just because there's nobody else handing you rules, you can do what you want to do. And uh, you can bounce ideas off of your colleagues, your friends, your investors, advisors. And um, there's this idea of failing fast, which I feel like is the right idea, but people seem to focus too much on the failing aspect of it. I'd say it's more like testing fast, where it doesn't take like two, three years to learn if these things are going to work or not. Um, mm. Like organizing a good test. If you remember back to science class in like fifth or sixth grade, where you have your hypothesis that you're testing and going through the scientific method. A lot of these business concepts, you can test them out in a relatively um, inexpensive way. And that allows you to um, have confidence before you go and do something really ambitious, like quit your day job. Mm, right. So while you were still working in the corporate environment as an engineer, were you also working on your idea at this, you know, before you quit? I, um, so I switched around at Qualcomm. So I had a, I had a clean break. So I was working as an engineer. Um, there was an internal innovation team that I switched over. It's called Qualcomm Impact. And I, I worked on that team for a few years. And that was as, I would say, as close as I could get to a startup being in a big company still. Um, and then after that, I, I quit. I still knew I wanted to do um, Yembo, but uh, or something like Yembo. I had actually this name called Yembo for um, years, like in high school. I think when I was 16, I named my first startup idea Yembo. I just kept recycling the name. So Yembo just meant Zach startup at some point. <laughs> and then um, just took on consulting projects because I, I didn't have like a, a product or a company incorporated or anything yet. And um, kind of in that in that time, I call it my professional gap year. That's where uh, the idea for Yembo as we know it today emerged. And um, yeah, the logo that we actually launched with is something I drew on my bed in my parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start somewhere, right? You're right. You got to start somewhere. That's right. Right. Now, the book said you had a, an early buyout offer that you turned down. What, why did, what, what's happened with that? So that was in the early, early days. So it's about, um, it's five, six years ago now. And what happened was we were so early. We had just um, started getting our first customers. We had just started seeing the success that the deployments are actually working. And it just felt like it was too early. Like we hadn't really set anything up yet in terms of like a business. We were engineers. We had an engineering product and we had our first few folks going through it. But like once you get involved in something and you realize the magnitude of what you're working on, um, you kind of have that North Star, you know where you're going and anything that um, 
kind of sells you short of that can kind of derail things a little bit. So, I mean, it was one of the most stressful times in my life. I didn't, uh, it wasn't like I just like flippantly um, moved on. But I think um, if I look back now to all the things that we were able to accomplish at the company and all the things we were able to add on since then, I definitely think it was the right decision because you really learn your market and your customers by servicing them. And when you have a early product, like you had an idea, maybe you worked on it for a couple of months and you launch it. I think what happens is um, you're testing like one hypothesis, but then as time goes on and you get um, upsell opportunities, maybe there's one person in a department and now they want to bring your tool out to the whole department or you get uh, refund requests or you get people who sign up and then exceed expectations. People sign up and don't, you just get this much richer picture of the problem that you're solving for your customers and you get way better at solving it because people um, at the end of the day, they vote with their wallets. And if they, they like something, they buy it. If they don't, they don't. And um, I think just having gone through all of that was something that was really key to us that we wanted to, we wanted to see the vision through and actually make it a reality in the industry. Good. Now let's back up a little bit and go through the process of how you got your first client. how did you get your first customer? Sure. So we spoke a little earlier about the initial demo. Um, we turned that into a product. So instead of it just being a pre-recorded video, we made an interface where a mover could send a link to one of their clients. Someone could um, click the link, record quick 10, 15 second videos of each room in their house. And then we could show them the results. They could provide a quote. So the very first client, we actually didn't have any AI yet because AI is very complicated, expensive to build. So what we did was we found... Um, through cold calling down Yelp. We just looked at moving companies and called. Um, we also looked at a couple other lists. I mean, Better Business Bureau, um, Angie's List. And um, moving is a very fragmented industry. I think there's about 7,000 moving companies in the US. And I just needed to find one that'd be interested to like give me the time today. So what we wanted to know from a company standpoint was, if I give you this um, product and there's no AI yet, can you as a trained person look at what's there and give an accurate quote. Because if a trained person can, it's going to be tough for AI to do it. Uh, I think that's like one big lesson is that um, AI is not magic. And um, these are more efficient object detectors that we were working with than what had been in the market before. Um, but it's not magic. So if you take a picture in the dark, people aren't going to be, be able to identify what's there. If you want to look at two things that like look identical, like here's a uh, Here's a baseball. Is it like an authentic World Series baseball or is it a or is it a replica? If a person can't just look at the video and tell, then AI is not going to be able to. So we wanted to test that out. And we also wanted to test out, would consumers even be willing to do this? So we signed a letter of intent that said, like, if you have AI, then I will pay you X dollars a survey or whatever. But we started out giving it away at either free or near free just to test these other pieces out. So say in return for you trying this fledgling technology, um, I'm not going to charge you or I'm not going to charge you a lot. But in return, I'd like to understand, like, what are your accuracy numbers, all that kind of stuff. And what we found was we were able to shrink error rates that were 50, 60 percent or more down to under 10, which is really the key in, in the moving industry is 10 percent is kind of the allowable threshold for a lot of different contracts. So that led us to believe that we had like a a pathway to to make it work. And the cool part about going through that process is you've built up your prospect list is everybody that we've talked to that either said no a lot of them just said hey this is great but we don't like pilot stuff when it's ready let me know 
And we did. Uh, we would uh, we noted it down in our uh, in our calendars, and we'd follow back up. And it's a little bit awkward the first time you do it, but you reply to like a two year old email, and you say, "Hey, remember?" <laughs> here, and uh, that whole process about just being um, kind of picky about who that first person's going to be, because I don't need to make something that works for the entire industry on day one. If I can't make one person happy, then I'm not going to go make a whole industry happy. So I think starting really small, making sure you do things the right way. And then gradually stepping on the gas from there was one of the things in hindsight that I feel like we did right. Mm, yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had a co-founder. How did that come about? So my co-founder, Sid, is the CEO of the company. I'm the CTO, Chief Technology Officer. He runs uh, the business overall, and I'm responsible for the engineering team. Um, I worked with him uh, for years. So I, I knew him from, from my days at Qualcomm. We worked together on, on Qualcomm Impact. So he was the overall technology lead. I was the software lead. Um, and I feel like that was really helpful knowing somebody by the time you incorporate. Because I just heard a lot of um, scary stories from other founder friends where people maybe jump too quickly. Mm -hmm. The co-founder does something erratic. I'm one of them. But I mean, it's tough. It's really hard to, to yeah. unwind hard to to resolve and once mm -hmm. the reached, it's almost impossible in some cases to bring it back we we're both kind of known quantities to each other by the time we we're looking at the incorporation docs um i had known them for most of my professional career already quick break here in the middle friends just to recommend something to you if you like to write i know i do and i'm usually in the middle of a writing project in one way or another but i came across this course called the author's playbook by dennis Geelan that really helped me in more ways than one just getting the resources at the end made it worth getting again it's called the author's playbook course it's under $100 and worth every penny. I'll put the link in the show notes for you to check it out. Just wanted to pass this tip along to you. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, because I jumped the gun early on and in, in, had this supposed partner. Um, but it was a situation where he was mostly all talk and and i brought the money in you know what i mean and uh, he was just a lot of hot air and um i gave it a year and said i'm done i'm not doing this anymore and actually he thought i he thought i meant i'm i'm out of the business but i just meant i'm i can't do this with you anymore <laughs> you know and that's when i went solo and and uh and started my own company but um so that yeah that's good that you knew this person before uh, because um, that means a lot for sure. It, it, it's a risky business all the way around having a partner, but the fact that you knew him and you got along well is 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 huge for sure. So, situations um, you run into that you're not going to have run into before when you're in the startup world. So, mm -hmm. we like to run through. Um, we did one thing that was kind of goofy and felt kind of awkward to start, but we um, we asked each other a bunch of hypotheticals around. Uh, I mean, we had a, so we make a business bank account and then there's mm -hmm. a great time to solve, like talk about how you view finances before there's anything really at stake. So we went through and said, what if we're like, we're both admins? What if, uh, what if you want to do a wire transfer out? You have to, I get a text message and I have to approve and vice versa. Um, and we ran through all these kinds of things and um, they're not 
fun conversations necessarily because like you want to get to building but um i've just heard too many cases where like uh the founder with the bank access just decides to revoke the other partner. Like there's so many things mm. that have gone on before that point that I, I've not seen that be salvaged before. So before we get into like the thick of things, um, let's go over and talk about how do we deal with stress? How do we deal with uh, all these other like random things that don't really come up unless you go into startup life? Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's good that you went through that for sure. So what were some of your biggest hurdles that you've faced early on in the in the startup process there's a lot we could go into um i think there's one that i learned a pretty helpful lesson on that we can spend some time on and that is um the technology that you build if you're building an ai company needs to solve a customer problem and we thought we had that a little bit sooner than we actually had that and what i mean by that is we built this technology and we were able to demonstrate if you don't use Yembo, you're basically capping yourself to one third of the output than if you do use Yembo. Meaning if you have eight hours that you wanna work in a day and you're willing to use our technology and let it count how many boxes is it gonna to take to pack up the books and things like that, then you can have three times as many calls in a day. But people misinterpreted this. So when we were deploying it, um, a lot of folks in the industry got nervous. They were worried about, uh, you say AI, they think things like Terminator or HAL and, uh, I don't think movies really helped in that regard, um, but uh, they thought of the AI replacing the person, which it can't do. I mean, to be a good salesperson, yes, you need to be diligent about counting boxes and things like that, but you also need to know how to build a report to the customer. You need to know how they, what they're interested in, what matters to them. You need to make sure that you're diligent and follow through and service their needs. And the AI is just like a portion of it that computers do a better job at than people um, when you're counting boxes and doing those kinds of tasks. So there was this misinterpretation that came as a result of us not clearly articulating it that I don't have grand ambitions to have like just robot chatbots <laughs> selling in the movie industry. I'm taking the, the part of your day that is error prone, that has high variation, and that has no um, ground truth. And I'm giving here are the pictures, here's what we agreed upon and like preventing problems before they happen. And I feel like um, if we hadn't gotten that, I don't think we would have a company today because the tool needs to be something that the customer sees a better version of themselves. Like that future that you're painting in the picture for them needs to be something palatable or you'll have adoption issues. And as engineers, like I was just carried away. It was cool. The AI could do it, but like that can only get you so far if it doesn't make the customer a better version of themselves that they can say, I want that future then uh, adoption doesn't really come. So there's that whole line, if you build it, they will come. I guess their answer is uh, maybe in certain cases, but you better you better think through the whole situation. A little. Not, not necessarily, right? Yeah. So what would you say are the, the biggest mindset, um, the biggest mindset uh, struggles that you had personally? There is nobody else who you can pass blame to. So if things are working or not working well, you need to figure it out. And um, it's okay to not be an expert in a field. You just be, you need to be willing to go and do it. So like this trade show, I had never exhibited at a trade show before. I'd never worked in sales. I, I was an engineer, but um, going and figuring it out and trying to see like, okay, what do we show in the demo? What resonates with people? 
um, what is like a reasonable amount of conversation to have so people um, can get through the booth in a quick enough time that you're not like holding up a line, things like that. Like I, I wasn't an expert going in, but you, somebody had to do it. And, um, and we had this idea that we still hold today that a lot of times the founder needs to go first. And, um, there are a lot of problems that I've seen come up if you outsource things too early to say, well, I'm, I don't do, I don't do sales. I'm just going to have somebody else go. But like the feedback that we got, the relationships that we made by being the founder, being there were so valuable down the road that I would argue it was better that, um, a not sales guy who doesn't know how to deal with a did a better job than a professional who didn't have that um, who didn't have the full context of the company. So now there's always limitations to um, what you should do yourself. I'd argue probably like legal contracts, things like that. You, you don't want to mess those up. So don't do everything yourself. But I feel like for new departments, new workflows, um, you as the founder, you got to talk to your first customer and outsource that. Um, when support tickets and complaints come in, like you as the founder handle the first ones. And then once you see patterns emerging, then you can put like a process in place. But in the early days, like you're charting out your trajectory and so much is up in the air that um, it just doesn't really work if you try to like hand that off to someone else too early. So my co-founder and I, we were the first salespeople. We were the first customer support reps. We were the first um, uh, presenters on, for, our, uh, for trade shows and things like that. And looking back, I, I still think that was the right call to make. Yeah, I, I did a trade show a long time ago. And um, without the founder of the company, he just said, you know, I'm busy. You're going to have to go drive to Kentucky and pull the trailer. And by the way, bring Earl. You know, he's going he's gonna to help you. Uh, he's going to do sales and you'll do the setup and, you know, just talk, smile and talk to people. But um, it was... <laughs> And neither one of us did a trade show before. And we went out there and set it up. And um, it was a huge learning experience uh, for, for sure. But uh, that was a long time ago when I had had a, a job with a, a water park development company. But um, so as you're going through uh, all of the, uh, the growth and building a team, uh, how is the support from... Uh, family or friends or or just you know around you how was how was the support for you I felt like I had great support with the people around me but I also felt like it didn't just come for free so I think um, having a good peer network is something that again takes work like in, in college maybe it comes for free because everyone's in the same hallway in the dorm room or whatever but when uh when you're setting out to start a company like searching out other um, peer groups, other founder friends um, is super valuable. I was fortunate in that um, my wife um, was actually working at a moving company. That's where the initial idea came from. So she she knew from day zero what, uh, what Yembo was all about. Um, but I think also having having friends that you can bounce ideas off of. So like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a trade show. I have no idea how do you get all of the equipment? Like, what do you put on the backdrop? What do you hand out in terms of collateral? Like having someone that you can just like buy a coffee and ask for 15 minutes, basic questions like that. Um, I think as a founder, if you choose to go that route, you get really good at asking really basic questions with a straight face and not having an ego in it. Because um, I think as an engineer, like you or any professional that has like a particular discipline, 
you get good in that field, you get used to being good at that field. And the thought of going back to square one can be kind of daunting. Um, and it is, I mean, it, for me, at least it was, it, it, uh, it was very humbling to go and have like a completely awful sales call. My first sales call I did, um, it was a 15 minute meeting. I ended up taking 60 minutes and I just demoed a bunch of stuff and I didn't leave any next steps. The quality of the call, like it was an F, but the learning that I got out of it to say, okay, this is, this is how sales worked. Um, you can only learn so much by, uh, by studying from afar. At some point you got to roll up your sleeves and do it. So like that trade-off that I'm willing to make now where I'll be embarrassing about something once for the sake of learning. And then the next time I'll come back and I'll know what I'm doing. I feel like that mentality helps in, in all aspects of startup life. Right. Right. Did anybody, anybody in your circle say you were crazy for doing this? Like, like, why are why are you doing this? Did anybody say that to you? Because I, not everybody understands what I'm trying to do. You know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, I've got family and friends and they just don't get it. Why did you quit your job? Why, why would you do that? You know, what, what are you doing? You know, so did anybody sort of say something similar to you? I mean, did you have any, anybody sort of just not understand? what you're trying to do. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, not everybody needs to understand. So yeah. the book we talk about, there's the, the chapter, the dangers of feedback. And the whole point of that is that when feedback comes in, it's really easy to give. It's much harder to figure out what do you do as a result of this feedback. Um, so you need to think about the context of who is this person who's giving it to me. And I would argue that's just as important as the words that they're saying. And, um, yeah, my friend who was trying to break into software engineering, who thought that I had the like pinnacle tech job and then I quit from it, he was like, didn't make any sense to him. Um, and there were some that were a bit more, um, like scared me a bit more in terms of uh, like I had a friend who started a company that didn't work out. And he said, are you really sure you want to go down this route? Like that kept me up at night. Um, but uh, I think trying to suss out the reason behind it and then choosing to accept or reject the feedback based on that. And then realizing like uh, if somebody is interested in working a nine to five, having a comfy, uh, comfy, cushy tech day job, you're not going to be able to convince them based on um, like what's driving you as an entrepreneur, because like you, you don't have the same values and that's totally fine. Like there are plenty of people that have productive careers, do great things for the world that are not entrepreneurs. I think if the world was only entrepreneurs, it'd be a scarier place. Um, so that's, it's okay. But I feel like um, learning to uh, accept certain feedback, reject other ones. We also had a lot of um, investors. The first thing we did when we were raising funding, we flew up to the Bay area and the hottest thing then was, um, self-driving cars and then drones and we had so many people just say i don't understand you have this technology why weren't why wouldn't you just go make a drone or why wouldn't you just go make a self-driving car but from our perspective we're like hey this is a super crowded industry there's probably going to be like one or two players that emerge it's really capital intensive because you don't just have to make a car or a truck or whatever you have to build all this ai tech on, on top of it so you have to raise like tens of to hundreds of millions to even have your foot in the door and then you're probably going to lose out to someone who's been there and been doing it for longer because you're competing with so many folks. Alternatively, computers are better than humans at identifying objects and images. That that changed in about 2015, 2016. And most industries had no clue yet. So that's why we're going in this other direction. And we're going to be like the uh, 
by the time people realize that there's a business to be had there, like we're already we're already uh, dominant in that field. So it was like you could almost tell in some cases, like the fourth or fifth one we took where the meeting didn't go well. You kind of knew in the first five minutes like where it was going to end, and ultimately we uh, we we recalibrated our our strategy for that because again, even even investors, right? They have a view of how the world should work, and if you don't conform to that, they get confused and you have to explain it. Um, but again, it doesn't have to please everybody. You need to find your customers. You need to please. You have employees. You have partners. Um, there's like a group of people that are really critical to the company's success. And um, if uh, if there's confused people on the internet, maybe that's okay. And, and that's why I asked. Your answer was was excellent, and that's that's why I asked it because not everybody needs to get it. Not everybody has to understand, and it's okay. You know, it's it's not it, it it shouldn't stop you from your your dream. That's well, Zach. One last question, if if I could. Um, so you, the book said you have international accounts now, and and uh, you're not just in the U.S. Um, but you have this deep understanding of AI from when you started, right? Is where are you going with this uh, AI concept? Is there is is it to make Yenvo better, or do you have any other plans in the future? Uh, still in the AI realm. So I think the plan is to make AI broader, and um, what I mean by that is. There's one relatively niche use case we started off with, kind of nailed that. Then we started moving on to other one. And um, what we're coming on to next is we're looking at just generally home services and looking at the uh, in-home service, be it um, moving or property insurance or painting or junk removal, remodeling, like all these different things people do in their home. They have a very similar arc. And that is you have a person who is probably stressed out who has a million things going on, like think about their state of mind when a pipe bursts in your basement or when you decide to do a kitchen remodel or when you get a new job and you need to move. Like these aren't um, like uh, very relaxing points in time in people's lives. And um, if you look at the care that Amazon takes in packing up your $2 toothbrush and shipping it to you overnight, it's like night and day different about the level of what technology can do in home services versus everything else. So it's like we've got people that are more stressed out, that are more time constrained. And um, we seem to be giving them overall like a lesser experience than what technology is capable of doing. So that's what I see AI really improving on, where it's um, going to make you be able to do things that used to take a bunch of specialists coming and visiting your home and doing it remotely. It'll be able to um, take some of the tedious parts out of a salesperson's day so that they can really focus on providing like top-notch service to their clients. And it's going to do it in a way that um, it'll change things. But I would say in the home services space, there's still like skilled um, skilled labor needed to actually build the job, right? Like AI cannot go be a plumber. I think if you, like, I think uh, they just kind of figured out how to get uh, vacuuming working most of the time, but there's still edge cases where it doesn't work. Um, but um, I think in terms of the AI working alongside the human and allowing them to do like bigger and better things. That's kind of the vision that I see where just um, I know how often things crash and I know all these weird edge cases that come up. Um, 
Uh, you mentioned we have international client clients, all these crazy things with our AI tech with different time zones that always cause headaches for our engineering team. So I think we're so far off from a place where like we can talk about robots and AI just like doing everything. But I think what is feasible and what is not science fiction is we can have it come alongside humans and like work better together. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It gets me really excited is that like we can provide something that uh, is just impossible otherwise. Well, it certainly is promising. I, I know some people get nervous about, you know, the the realm of AI and how it's going to change our lives, but there's certainly a lot of promising things uh, as well. Well, Zach, thanks for being with us today. Folks, the, the book again is Grow Up Fast. It's on Amazon. It's a good read. And if you're thinking about uh, launching a startup, or even if you just need a little bit more guidance, I, I recommend this book. Uh, for you as well. Zach, thanks for your time today. You had some great insight for us. Really appreciate your, your time. Thank you so much, Tom. Have a good rest of your day. Well, that's all for this episode. If you want to get started on your online business and need some help working through the process, I have a few options for you. You can take the brand new online course I just created, the Solopreneur 90-Day Launch Plan, and go through the same coaching process that I offer one-on-one, -on -one, but at your own pace. Or you can get direct one-on-one -on -one or group coaching from me where we can really dig into the issues that you're struggling with the most. Either way, you'll have a roadmap for your launch with a solid foundation in place. Just go to TomClaremont.com and pick the options that work best for you. I'll put the link in the show notes. But friends, as always, stay encouraged, follow your dream, and don't give up.